For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was, to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of his spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these are also descended of Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the, by the superior. In the case of tithes, in the case in the case tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in laws as well. For the one, for the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with the tribe, with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life, for it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because, it is, because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save, save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. It was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, 
like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once and for all when he offered himself up. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priest, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. This is the word of God. Good morning. Let me first say my appreciation to Pastor Gerald and Pastor Johnny and the elders for letting me preach and for you guys. Um, I know it's it's not lost on me that I'm standing and sharing a pulpit with people way out of my league, uh, pastorally. And in fact, it's a good segue because there's one of them in the room who just achieved something that's worth celebrating. Our own Pastor Eric Redman has completed his doctorate. So stand up. He's right there if you can't see. So, uh, yeah. Not an easy task to get a PhD. And I know lots of uh, hardships, but hopefully it was all worth it. And here you are. So, congrats to you for that. All right, let's turn back towards. Hebrews, and let me open us up with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you that we can come into a family of God, Lord, and that uh, just thank you for the gift that this church is to all of us. We pray for its provision. Lord, we ask that you would speak to us this morning. No one here needs to hear from me, but we all need to hear from you. So, Lord, speak through your word to our hearts. Draw us near to your Son. In his name, we can ask all of these things. Amen. Well, we are back in the book of Hebrews. We're continuing our series, Steady On, after a short break last week for Mother's Day. So let me remind us where we are. And for those of you who are new to the series and need to be caught up a little bit, hopefully this will be helpful. The writer of Hebrews is writing to a group of mainly Jewish believers who are being tempted to go back. Christianity and their newfound faith has brought intense persecution to them because as Christians, it put them outside of the protections that Jewish believers would have had in that society. And so it was a strong temptation for them to apostatize, to abandon Christ and to go back to their former ways in Judaism. So the writer of Hebrews composes something like a 13-chapter sermon to encourage them to stay the course Because what they have in Christ is superior to what they had previously. But Hebrews also speaks to us and warns us against the subtle ways that the world can slip back in. We can look up and find ourselves at a distance from God as well. Listen to how the writer puts it back in chapter 2, verse 1. He writes, We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. I love the metaphor of drifting. It's a nautical term in Greek. And it's really helpful because it shows just how subtle it can be when you start slipping away from your original conviction. Growing up, we would often go to the beach, and I was the kid who wanted to go way out in the ocean and maybe have like a snorkel or just play in the waves. And I would go and play for 30 minutes or so, and I would swim back to shore, and I would look, and I would not recognize anybody. I didn't know where I was. 
uh, you start looking around in different faces, different places, uh, because you end up several hundred yards downstream in the ocean if you're not paying attention. It's really easy to drift. And that happens to us. We look up and we're in a totally different place than we were before. And we can ask ourselves, how do we get there? Because drifting is subtle. That's the point of drifting. It doesn't say swimming. It doesn't say rowing. It says drifting. You don't even know what's happening. And even worse, a little bit of a different analogy here, but the water starts getting inside of you as you drift. So the sinful current that has carried you downstream has started to seep into you and poison you. So you're not just in an unrecognizable place, you're becoming an unrecognizable person. Some of you can relate to this, that the addiction you thought you had under control, you come to find out is controlling you. Or the resentment and the hatred you've been harboring for years has gotten inside and made you a bitter and resentful person. Or years of resisting the Spirit and living how you want to live and procrastinating when you'll get your life back on track have made Jesus seem distant and irrelevant. Drifting is subtle, but it's a real danger. So what's going to keep you from going back or from drifting away? For the original audience, there was a temptation to go back into Judaism. But for us, there's a temptation in a similar way to go back to our life before Christ, back into a dryness and disinterestedness in the things of God. So what's going to keep you? You know, I work with the high schoolers here, and I can testify to you that the siren song of our current age is very strong. Just imagine what it felt like for you to go to high school and then double it. And that's what it feels like now. The temptations and the allures and the hardness of it all. And I know from that what the answer is not. It's not good morals and rules and New Year's resolutions. Those things are good, but it's going to take a lot more than that to keep us from drifting. Christianity as a a moral code, trying to compete with the temptations of this world and the force of the cultural current that we live in, loses every time. It can't compete. The writer of Hebrews says that we don't need something to help us. We need someone. We need a person. We need Jesus. And not just that, but he goes on to say that we need Jesus because he is our high priest. An eternal priest who's not going anywhere, who can keep us. And to make this point, the writer's going to send us back to an obscure story in Genesis chapter 14 about an ancient priest king named Melchizedek. And the writer's been wanting to do this for several chapters. He first mentions Melchizedek back in chapter 5, and then he mentions him again in chapter 6. And now finally in chapter 7, he's going to dig in and explain what exactly he is talking about with this person and saying that Jesus has come in the order of Melchizedek. So who is this guy? Who is Melchizedek? People throughout church history have given various answers. Uh, An older, mainly Jewish answer was that he is Shem, son of Noah, still alive, acting as a priest. Another common interpretation would say that Melchizedek is a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ, a Christophany. It sounds like Melchizedek is immortal when you read it. If you listen to Hebrews 7.3, this is from the New American Standard Version. It says, without father... 
without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. But I believe that the writer is saying that Melchizedek is something else. He's not Shem. He's not even a pre-incarnate Christ. He's going to show us that Melchizedek is a sign or a type of Christ. Type of Christ. So what does that mean? Uh, let me give you an illustration to help, help you understand. Maybe you've watched a series on Netflix before, and you get to season six, season seven, and you see that they've run out of ideas. Right? It's kind of dragging on. You're like, this is not very good anymore. It started off pretty good. The plot is weaving. People quit, so they have to kill them in the show. It's just kind of going all over the place. Right? Uh, and the show finally you know, wraps it up and reveals itself to be kind of the money grab that it was. Now, contrast that to some of the great stories of our day. Stories that are marked by a clear narrative that heads towards a predetermined end. And you can tell when you're watching or reading one of these stories... Because when the author knows where they're headed, then they can weave in elements of foreshadowing that that show the ending along the way. Oftentimes, you you finish it, and then you're like, i got to watch it again because I missed all these things the first time through, right? That once uh, once you see the ending, the hidden illusions and foreshadowings become clear. I believe that's what God has done in telling his story. He wrote towards Christ in the Old Testament weaving him all the way through. Even way back in Genesis, we're going to see how God was preparing us and giving us clues and categories of who Christ would be and what he would do. And once we realize who Jesus is, we're invited back for a second viewing or a second reading. And we can see how God was teaching his people about Jesus and giving them categories for what he was going to do all the way through the Bible. Here's some examples. We read a lot about the sacrificial system and the tabernacle in the Old Testament. These are earthly versions of a heavenly reality that Christ was going to die and be the real payment for our sin. Or consider Moses. The first time through, you you like Moses. He's a nice guy. He seems brave and he takes the people out of Egypt. But then you go back and for the second reading, you see that he's actually a prophet who chose to become one with his people who cast off the riches of his royal life, who led his people out of slavery, out of bondage, through the waters of judgment into the promised land. And when they get there, he is their mediator. So the second time through, you see a little bit more. And now here we are at Melchizedek. And he's going to be the same thing. He's going to be designed and shaped to teach us about Christ and to foreshadow him. The Bible calls these types or typology. Um... And we see that here in in verse 3 again. Let me read it to you one more time. It says in this translation, Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God. That's in the New American Standard Version. I think it's a good way of interpreting the Greek. Melchizedek was made like the Son of God. God wasn't hunting for illustrations, right? It's like, oh, there's an interesting story. But in reverse, Jesus is primary, and then back to Melchizedek. Melchizedek was shaped by Christ and who Christ would be. So that means we can go back to the type of Melchizedek and learn about who he points to, Jesus. So let's do that. Let's go back, and I'm going to kind of walk you through Genesis 14, tell you the story, and you can, we can start unpacking the typology there. So it's a pretty complicated scene. There's a battle that takes place in Genesis 14 where some kings 
uh, in this valley, like the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah and some other kings, want to overthrow this eastern warlord figure named Kedorlaomer. And they try to fight him and they lose. They lose pretty badly. So Kedorlaomer takes, uh, he plunders Sodom and Gomorrah, takes some people with him, and he captures Lot, Abraham's nephew. And so Abraham's not going to have that. So this is when he enters the story. He gets 318 men, and they go on a rescue mission. So they head out, and they come in at night. They divide the army. They come in and attack, and they win. And they rout the army, and they reclaim Lot and all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah. And so on their way back, we pick up in this fascinating scene of Genesis 14, starting in verse 17. So I'll read it to you. It says, After Abram returned from defeating Kedolaomer and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shavah, that is the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, With a raised hand I have sworn an oath to the Lord, God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the strap of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. So this is quite a bizarre moment. Abraham is, Abraham is coming back. He's caught between these two kings. There are really two kingdoms, right? The kingdom of Sodom and the kingdom of Salem, one of whom he knows well. He's heard about the king of Sodom. He knows about the wickedness of that city and that ruler. But then who's this other guy? This Melchizedek. He's not even part of the battle. He just shows up. He wanders in. And not only that, he lays out a banquet, a kingly banquet of bread and wine. Then he blesses Abraham. And then, he, and then Abraham gives him, Melchizedek, a tenth of everything he owns. And then, just as quickly as he shows up, he's gone. Never to be mentioned again in the rest of Genesis. So this is a strange story. This is the first time in Scripture we read, we read about a priest. We read it, first time we read about a tithe. And so... We're invited back to this second reading, and let's, let's look at it a little more carefully. What do we have here? We have a priest king of righteousness, that's the meaning of his name, from Salem, which is Jerusalem, bringing the bread and the wine, which to me look like the sacraments, to the patriarch Abraham and preparing a table before him in the presence of his enemies. It almost feels like God's being heavy-handed when you read it that way. Like, okay, we get it, God. Uh, <laughs> so then what does Melchizedek offer Abraham? He offers him a feast, he offers him a blessing, and then he offers him an opportunity to worship through the tithe. And then what does Sodom offer Abraham? In contrast, he offers him worldly wealth, keep the possessions, kind of the stolen goods of, of that. And then he says, you perhaps would have offered Abraham a bit of an opportunity for an alliance, because Abraham's been offered, been promised the whole land, right? Maybe he can partner up with Sodom and, and take it. So what's Abraham's response? What does he do? Is he going to cast himself on the Lord, or will he trust in kind of his own schemes? And what he does is that he worships the Lord, and he rejects Sodom. He tithes, which at that time was a way of saying that the victory he just received, and really everything he has, comes from God. He's going to give back a tenth or a portion. 
Tithing is, is worship by saying, God has brought me thus far, and God will bring me the rest of the way. So Abraham says to Sodom, the king of Sodom, you can keep your stuff. I don't need your help. I'm trusting in God's provision, not my own, not my own wisdom. And we can kind of see now why the writer of Hebrews loves this story. Abraham doesn't drift into an unholy alliance with the world, but instead he trusts in God's high priest, believing by faith that God's way is better than his own plans. So we see the parallels. So after this story, the Bible doesn't mention Melchizedek again for a thousand years until David, who had been the first Israelite to sit on the throne of Melchizedek in Jerusalem, because before David they haven't, hadn't conquered Jerusalem. So David is the, really the first picture of a Melchizedekian king. And David's going to write a psalm, Psalm 110. And he's going he's to look ahead prophetically to another Mel, Melchizedek coming. He writes this in Psalm 110. He says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And then he writes, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So David sees another priest king coming, who's going to come and reign on the throne of Melchizedek. And then you fast forward another thousand years. Jesus has come. Jesus has died, been raised, and has ascended to his heavenly throne. And this is where the writer of Hebrews picks up the story. And he's going to tell us what was the foreshadowing that Melchizedek offered to teach us about Jesus. He's going to say that Christ is actually what Melchizedek was symbolically. So Christ is actually what Melchizedek was symbolically. So let's see, let's see the writer's conclusions. First, he concludes that, Melchiz- that Jesus is superior, is superior to the Levitical priesthood. That's in verse 11. It says, Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? The Levitical priesthood falls short because it was only ever supposed to point to Jesus. This was always the plan. As Psalm 110 makes clear, there was going to be a coming priest king, and he was not going to be a Levitical priest. He was going to be a Melchizedekian priest. He was going to be a different kind of priest, an ancient order of priests. And this means that the Levitical priesthood, with all its types and laws and sacrifices, has served its purpose. Don't go back to the type, but don't, don't leave the reality for the thing that it points to. That's one thing the writer is saying. The second thing he's saying is that God made Christ our priest by an oath. Listen to verse 21. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind that you are a priest forever. So Jesus is just categorically different than the Levitical priesthood. They had a line of succession and inheritance. But like Melchizedek, God proclaimed Jesus to be our priest. And this is the kind of priest that we need. We don't need like an earthly tradition of religiosity. We need a supernatural answer because our problems are not superficial. They run deep. And we need a divine solution to that. And his third conclusion is that Jesus is eternal and has an eternal priesthood. Just like with Melchizedek, no one came after Melchizedek, no one came before Melchizedek. He's typologically an eternal priest in the Old Testament. 
It doesn't end. No one comes after him. Jesus is an actual eternal priest because Jesus has ascended and can never die. So he's on his throne. All the types have been completed. I read that there are 83 high priests from Aaron until the fall of the second temple, each one dying and being replaced by the next one and the next one and the next one. In contrast to that, we have a high priest who has ascended, ascended to his throne. He is in heaven. All right, let me wrap it up with three takeaways for us. Firstly, since Jesus is eternally on the throne, he can save us eternally. Listen to verse 25. It says, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. This is the kind of priest we have to have. We have to have someone who's not going to change and be a permanent place in our lives. The writer of Hebrews keeps telling us these things about Melchizedek because he wants us to know that we have that kind of great high priest, eternal on the throne. Jesus is not going anywhere in your life. He is there. He is patient. He's willing to bring you back in. That's his first takeaway. His second one is this. Jesus is praying for us. Jesus is interceding for us. In verse 25, again, it says, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Now, sometimes this intercession feels like what Jesus said to Simon in Luke 22, where he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. So one way Jesus is interceding for us is that when we move through the things he's called us to go through, the really tragic and hard things in this life, he is praying for us that our faith will not fail. I love the picture of Stephen in Acts chapter 7. He preaches a sermon. He's dying. He's getting killed. Uh, He's getting martyred. And he looks up and he proclaims, I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. He doesn't say sitting. He says standing. And in that time, standing was the, the posture of prayer. So what God gave Stephen in his hour of need was a vision of Jesus interceding for him in his hardest moment. And we can trust that that's true for us as well, that when we are going through incredible trials or when we're facing our own death, Jesus is there and he's praying for us. But more than that, Jesus is not just praying for us. He is a living intercession. In verse 22 in chapter 7, it says, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. So it's not just that he has to pray for us, but just him being in heaven is a prayer for us. When we see his wounds in heaven, it tells us that our sin has been paid for. When we see his resurrected body, it tells us of our coming resurrection. Jesus pleads our case before God just by him being in heaven as our surety or as our inheritance. Every beat of his heart is speaking for our future resurrection. So Jesus has passed through death. So will we. That means God's not going to default on his promises that we see With our eyes of faith, we can look into heaven and see our exalted priest, and we know that God's promises are true for us. So trust yourself to this priest. I've been reading a book, and I read this quote where it said, uh, every problem was once a solution. It's an interesting quote. Every problem was once a solution. And you know what that means is that a lot of the things we've gotten ourselves into, we were trying to make something else better, but we really made it worse. And... uh, It's kind of like what we're talking about here. The Levitical priesthood was there. It was a solution, but it's becoming a problem if you still trust in it. And we're the same way. 
A lot of our solutions have become problems. The place where we've drifted to, perhaps it started off as a solution in your life. You know, perhaps you didn't know any better. You were young. Perhaps it was a way for you to deal with the pain and the unhappiness that you were feeling and you couldn't make it better. Perhaps you thought that there was really something better beyond Christ, and so you left him behind and you went to go find out like the prodigal son. And now you look up and you realize your mistake, that your solution has become a problem. So I would plead with you this morning, and to myself and to all of us, let's turn back to the real solution. Jesus is living water. Don't chase broken cisterns anymore. I like this quote from C.S. Lewis as we close. He said, look to yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look to Christ and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in. So a lot of times the way we want to answer our problems and our own strength push us further away from Christ. So I would encourage you this morning, turn back to Christ. He's our high priest. He has good things for you. See yourself like Abraham. Caught between Salem and Sodom, what is your choice going to be? Do you really think it's better down the line if you go that way? What if you trusted Christ? What if you came to Christ this morning and see what he has for you? I don't think you're going to be disappointed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we have an eternal high priest on the throne interceding for us and who's resurrection power pleads our case and promises a future resurrection waiting for us one day. Jesus, thank you that you are interceding for us, that you love us, that you are standing as our high priest, inviting us back to you. I pray, Lord, you would give us the eyes to see it and the faith to make it a reality in our own lives. I pray for those here this morning who don't know you, Lord, that they would see in the story of Scripture a compelling vision of the answer to our deepest needs and problems. The sin inside of us is destroying us, and Jesus, you are our only hope. But for all of us, Lord, draw us near to you. Call us back home. It's in Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen.